welcome to the TetraCast, RPG Sites Seemingly Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Brian Vitale, and joining me today are Adam Vitale. Hey, guys. And James Galizio. Hey. Yeah, George is in the middle of moving uh, from one place to another, and we assume that he is exhausted and is asleep. We will welcome him on if he shows up in the middle of recording this, but we have a show to do, so we're going to go on and keep going. Uh, this week is not as packed as last week, but there's still a bunch of high-profile announcements within the last seven days, uh, kind of unexpected ones that we'll get to. But as always, we're going to start with what we've been playing, which since there's only a few of us here, will take you know not, not as long as it normally does. Uh, James, you've been looking at something that's actually released just in the last couple of days that is of interest to the site. So what do you think about... Uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield's first part of their DLC expansion pass. All right. Well, first off, uh, I've already we've already pushed like impressions for it and whatnot. So if you want to have a bit more in, well, so if you want to have some more in depth um, impressions, that's up on the site. Uh, generally, all I want to say is that. Um, I'm kind of of two minds about the expansion and it's kind of how I've always felt about it because I knew that if it was good, then part of me would wonder, okay, so what happened to the base game? Like, I, I feel like hmm, one of the more common criticisms about sword and shield was that it felt a bit rushed. And I was definitely one of those people that, agreed with that assumption that it probably needed it like at least another year in development if not because of a lack of content because the wild area when you had the online like active basically was unacceptable performance like it had frame drops stuttering freezes hitches just everything just an absolute embarrassment but um enough negativity i'd actually say that the isle of armor is surprisingly very good like uh, my one main issue with the wild area in the base game was that it didn't feel like it was actually any exploration because it felt like everything was open and there wasn't really any areas that you needed to go a specific way to reach and i guess now is a good time to kind of say that the isle of armor itself the area is essentially one big wild area with uh, two towers, one of which you get to go into near the end of the expansion, and the Master Dojo. So pretty much the entirety of the DLC is another wild area, but to say that it's a lot more interesting than wild area in the base game would be a huge understatement. Like, uh, I feel like for a bunch of people that maybe weren't completely sold on the concept of the wild area in the base game, this might be enough to change your mind because the wild areas in the base game didn't feel like proper replacements for routes. And I know for me, one of my major complaints with the base game was, is that all of the routes were incredibly linear. There were no optional routes whatsoever. And it felt like the game itself just didn't have enough exploration and it's kind of funny because I feel like there's more exploration in this one DLC area than the rest of the main game combined. 
So you have multiple layered caves that are built into the wild area, which if, if you haven't played Sword and Shield, the wild area in the, in the base game was basically just a wide open plain. There was no caves. There was no real verticality or elevation, nothing like that. But here you've got, it feels like it's a larger area. I'm not sure if that's exactly true or if it, it's, but it's at least the same size and it feels a lot more, not, not, maybe not condensed, but it feels like there's more content in the same sized area, if that makes any sense. It kind of feels more, um, dungeon-like almost when you talk about verticality and going inside and outside of caves yeah it's not super crazy but it it's enough it makes it feel like a proper replacement for routes and if this is what wild areas are going to be going forward it does give me a certain degree of hope for the series going forward after admittedly i kind of lost quite a bit of that after playing the base game um now is it a huge DLC? No. But it's only like one half of the $30 expansion pass. And obviously we need to wait and see to see how much the other DLC expands on things. But there's also plenty of little hints that the Isle of Armor area is going to get a little bit of an expansion itself when the next DLC drops. It feels like there's going to be some more things to do there, which that would be great. Um there's lots of little activities you can do. Like after you beat the uh, DLC, you get access to a new kind of side mode called restrictive sparring, where you choose three Pokemon that share a typing and then go to town against some opponents. Uh, there's this kind of side activity called, well, it doesn't really have a name, but there's this one dude that's lost a ton of Alolan Diglets, which look like regular Diglets, except they have like three yellow hairs on their head. And these things are hiding around in the environment just underground. So all you can see is the tips of their heads and the bits of hair. And you can look around the entire island and try to find all 150 of those things, which um, for one actually gives you a reason to explore. And it makes it feel like a very deliberate decision to make the Isle of Armor have a certain degree of exploration attached to it. Of course, that could also be that uh, maybe Game Freak thought that if you were hardcore enough of a fan of Pokemon to buy the DLC, that maybe you would want some exploration. I, I don't know. So, um, would I'm, you I'm, get anything for finding those diglets? I'm just curious. Like, yes, what's the point? Uh, there's certain milestones for the um, numbers of diglets you find. And the same dude that asks you to find them will give you Alolan forms of Pokemon as you reach each of those milestones. And there's That's actually cool. a cool, cool little, um, there's also a cool little, um, I won't say what it is, but there's a really nice uh, reward for hitting the 100 mark. So yeah. Um, I will say I was pretty surprised just how much more exploration there is in this uh, DLC because, like, from the get-go, the Crown Tundra, the second expansion pass that they announced, like, the one that's supposed to be coming in the fall or even if that... I'm not even sure if it's going to hit the fall well, this time. Well, that one is kind of where we're making the uh, assumption that uh, that's their holiday release, is is that. Well, yeah. there's, the, there's the side that we also are getting... Uh, we're not covering this on our site, I don't think, but... The new Pokemon Snap was obviously a big splash announced in the last week as kind of like the if uh, it's one it's weird. I wonder if Pokemon's kind of going to go into this like 
what what's their cadence going to look like going forward uh, with the with their releases? Because it was for a while mainline, then uh, re-release. Like uh, they would do, you know, Alpha Alpha Sapphire or Alpha. What are those games? Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire. And then they would go into you know X and Y, and then they would go into uh, the other. Like, are we going to see a Diamond and Pearl re-release or? Um... I've been I, seeing some speculation about that, but I wonder if that's just, you know, it's a matter of time. Next game that hasn't been. Uh, it's only a matter of yet. time. Um, I will say that. Hmm, how do I put this? It's funny that you talk about the 3DS games because I feel like most people that played Pokemon around the time that X and Y came out would agree that those games needed a follow-up game to kind of fix some things and it never really got one and what ended up happening is that so there was a pokemon in x and y or generation six that was kind of like the third box legendary to kind of coincide with um x and y's well first off it was pretty obvious because that legendary's name started with a z (laughs) so Um, people were assuming that there was going to be a Pokemon Z. And there was even, for the anime, there was an entire season called X, Y, and Z. And there was a new form of that Pokemon that people were assuming would be in a Generation 6, like, re-release. And it just never happened. And that uh, new form just ended up getting pushed into Generation 7 as a kind of side activity. so what I'm trying to get at here is that I feel like that because of this DLC, Generation 8 is getting the sort of chance that Generation 6 unfortunately never got. Most people seem to like Generation 7. I had my own issues with it, but I can I can definitely agree that it was a step up from 6. Um, Generation 8, in its base form, feels a lot like Generation 6. But already, just with this first DLC pack... It, all, it feels better than Generation 6 did, in my eyes. And it's only going to get better once Crown Tundra comes out. And obviously, we don't know the full scope of it. But since they never really advertised Isle of Armor as having more of an exploration focus, but they did for Crown Tundra, it makes me feel hopeful. Because two of the new legendary Pokemon that are coming in that expansion our new Reggie Pokemon, which if you play Generation 3, Ruby and Sapphire, those legendary Pokemon are very unique in the sense that finding them in the old Game Boy Advance games was basically an entire mystery in and of itself because you had to find this one hidden area off this one route that isn't really telegraphed and then you literally have these the, like hidden messages that you have to decode. Then you have to have like specific Pokemon your party to unlock the uh, areas where you can even find the three Regis in Generation 3. And then you had to do specific things after decoding messages there. So there was a lot of like intrigue to it. There was a lot of mystery. It was very very engaging especially when you were a kid and i'll be honest i wasn't really expecting um game freak to do anything like that for the crown tundra 
because of how linear and how railroaded the base game felt. But after playing um, Isle of Armor, I do feel like there is a distinct chance that maybe they will bring back some of that intrigue, some of that mystique. And I'm very excited to see that. I hope I'm right. So while you were talking, to, uh, I pulled up the Pokemon series like release list according to Wikipedia um, because, uh, first of all, I misspoke. And I guess uh, X and Y came out the year before Omega Ruby yeah. and Alpha Sapphire, not after. But there really hasn't been a clear cadence because uh, some most of the time between release and expanded release, there's two years. Like Diamond and Pearl was 2006 and Platinum was 2008. Black and White was 2010. Black and White 2 is 2012. But then Sun and Moon and Ultra Sun and Moon were back-to-back. Obviously, Sword and Shield and Sword and Shield Expansion Pass is back-to-back. Sometimes between those two releases is when you get your re-release. Uh, but like Heart Gold and Soul Silver came out after Platinum but before the next gen. But then like back in 2004, Fire Red and Leaf Green re- released the same time as emerald so i just rattled off a bunch of games there but the idea that i'm getting at is that it's according to this list that i'm looking at just kind of gleaning the release order there really hasn't been a set cadence so maybe i shouldn't really think about what's supposed to release this holiday versus what is though i do wonder if this means that sword and shields like tail will go past 2020 is it going to get a second expansion pass into the next year or because sometimes there's usually there's more than that gap when it comes to the base release and then the re-release. So yeah, I guess I there's really wonder. no way of knowing. Yeah, I do wonder because already I think Sword and Shield have sold the most besides the original like red and blue. So they've been doing gangbusters. So I'm not sure if they might think, okay, how much more of this can we sell or it might be well since it's already sold so well, maybe we should make another game because we don't know how much longer the sales tale will be for Sword and Shield. But again, that's obviously their decision. That's something they're going to have to kind of crunch numbers with on their own. Uh, Point being, I enjoyed Isle of Armor. Uh, It's not perfect, but I definitely feel like it's very much in the right step. And as someone that... It's weird because I don't feel like I, I, I... hated sword and shield but obviously we our review score was one of the lower ones out there but um yeah isle of armor is definitely good um if you're a pokemon fan and you've wanted to play more sword and shield it's a no-brainer to get the expansion pass even now but um i am very interested to see exactly what uh, crown tundra is going to bring to the table and you since you were kind of a little bit more critical of it when it released i believe you like even more than i normally would that you say that this is actually a a leap in the right direction because i feel like if this if this expansion had the same you know pitfalls that the base game did you wouldn't have been shy to to just state that but you're 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 optimistic on it so i think that's a great sign yeah um so the other thing i've been well Plain isn't the right word. It's a visual novel. So the visual novel I've been reading uh, recently is uh, Higurashi When They Cry. Um, if those of you listening aren't really uh, big into the visual novel scene, the When They hey, Cry series, yeah, the When They Cry <laughs> series is a pretty popular um, one. Um, Higurashi itself actually got a pretty competent anime adaptation that I'm assuming most people that are listening to have probably 
watched that or heard of that rather than have oh so is is when they cry the series and higurashi's the entry yes yes oh, okay um so I read Umineko, which was another part of the series back in 2018. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's probably my favorite visual novel of all time. And it's very emotional. It's um, the one that they cry series are very much a psychological horror slash uh, mystery type of series. And really just calling it that is kind of unfair to what the series is because as much as like, as distressful as some of the moments in the series are, there's also an underlying feeling of hope to everything. And that's something that's both in Higurashi and Umineko. Um, the reason I want to talk about this is that I'd actually been waiting to read Higurashi for quite a while because although Umineko has been fully translated and released for a couple of years now, uh, Higurashi had a bit of an interesting cadence for its release because it got an official English release on Manga Gamer's website back in, I want to say, like, well, in the early 2010s. But the translations themselves weren't great. I do remember reading that by the end of it, like, chapter seven and eight, the last two chapters were actually all right. But the first half of the game was very poorly translated. And so eventually they decided to start retranslating them. And then they also were kind of porting everything to Unity for whatever reason. Um, so it's only been recently that the last chapter has gotten its retranslation. And because of that, the entire story is now on Steam. I think the final chapter released last month in May. Uh, so. I was kind of waiting for everything to be out so I could start reading. So I didn't have to like get near the very end and be like, oh no, <laughs> I need to wait. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very good. Obviously I don't want to talk about too much because of spoilers and whatnot. It's a, especially since it's a mystery novel, like talking about spoilers would be especially kind of shitty. Um, the interesting thing about the way I've been reading it is that there's a homebrew Vita port of it where you use a conversion tool. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask about this, but I didn't know if I was missing some details. Like, I saw some people playing this on Vita, but you had to do something weird to get it. I don't know if it was because it was only released in Japan, you had to patch it, or if it was only released somewhere else and it's just being emulated. I just wasn't sure of the details. Okay, so there is an official Vita version of Higurashi in Japan. I think it's called Higurashi uh, Sui or something like that. Um, it doesn't have a translation. Nobody's really tried to implement a translation. Maybe that'll change in the future because the Vita homebrew scene has been seeing a bit of a renaissance. They've been doing crazy stuff like making it so the PlayStation TV can natively output 1080p. And also they've made it so that Persona 4 Golden can output at 1080p with a PSTV overclock. All sorts of crazy stuff. But um, the version of Higurashi I'm reading on Vita is actually a VNDS port with a few customizations. Uh, VNDS, based off the name, was a sort of homebrew tool for the DS that was made so that people could read visual novels on the go back before cell phones were really a thing. Um, it's actually kind of appropriate that Higurashi would be part of that kind of idea because, um, fun fact, Higurashi back when uh, it was first coming out in Japan at Comic-Con, there was a 
conversion tool to make it so that you can play the game on Game Boy Advance. <laughs> Fun little fact there. Uh, but anyways, VNDSs continued even after the DS is like come and gone and all that. So it's on Android, it's on 3DS, it's on Vita, etc. I think it's even on Switch, and it isn't now. It will be eventually. Um, so there's the way that you get it working on Vita, um, Higurashi, I mean, is a bit weird because apparently the way that the game handles like progression in the narrative, like in chapters and things that unlock, because there's these little things called tips that unlock after chapters in each of the, well, chapters in each of the story arcs, which themselves are called chapters. So it's a bit weird to say, but anyways, the way that, those are unlocked is handled by the executable which means that there's some little quirks to getting the progression working on the beta version where people have to make like preset kind of like instruction text files for the engine to read so it knows after x script file it'll unlock this tip file for you to read and vice versa and so it'll also have like that sort of thing, which is a little weird, but in practice, it's not all that bad. Um, what's been interesting for me, though, is that um, only the first half of the story has actually been tested by anyone on Vita. So now that I'm in chat, well, I just finished chapter five, so obviously I'm already a bit in no man's land, but um, I was running into issues with the latter half of the game, the latter half of the story, which I guess makes sense since nobody's tested it. So I've actually been uh, working with the uh, person on GitHub that really made the conversion tools and the port of VNDS to work with Higurashi. And kind of bit by bit, we've been hashing out the last few issues preventing the rest of the, the homebrew port from working for the rest of the story. So that's, oh, that's been cool. interesting. So uh, hopefully, uh, um, assuming that chapter six and seven work fine, there's something they need to do for the engine itself for the last chapter to uh, work. It's a little quirk of the last chapter. It's nothing really technical. It's just the way that the preset files and the unlock and progression works right now wouldn't really work with the eighth chapter because of its, uh, um, its own idiosyncrasies. But um, I do believe that chapter six and seven should work because um, we've hashed out all the problems of Chapter 5 now. And since the reason why Chapter 5 had issues and Chapter 4 didn't is because Higurashi itself is kind of split into two halves. Like the first four chapters is the question arcs and the last four um, chapters are quote-unquote answer arcs. So they're technically like the first half is when they cry one and the second half is when they cry two, which is weird. So there was some engine changes, some slight tweaks to how things are handled for like uh stuff like background music and also the way that eye catches were drawn onto the scene which those are fixed now on the vita versions port so assuming that those were the only issues then six and seven should run fine so i'm interested to see if uh we can actually get the uh, entire thing playable on vita so maybe you already said this but I missed it or forgot. If I didn't have a Vita and I wanted to play this, where, where can I play it at outside of this Vita port? Um, it's available on Steam, and you can also get it on Manga Games uh, website. Each, each chapter is sold separately, though I do think there's a bundle on Manga Gamers website 
Not sure. If there's not a bundle, there probably will be sooner than later. Cool. I wish I had more to say, but it's just that I don't play a lot of visual novels, and just for the respect of people who do want to play it, you haven't really gone much into the what like the premise or the story is. But hearing yeah. the technical side about people who are wanting to play this on Vita is kind of interesting, and it's cool that you're able to play a small role in troubleshooting the uh, outstanding issues for it. Yep. So what I've been playing this week has been Fantasy Star Online 2. Uh, I've just made it through episode one and just kind of kind of parked at episode two to do like side stuffs and uh, basically like kind of grind a bit and kind of just not just not just, you know, funnel myself straight through the story, but just to kind of actually like play around with different classes and things like that. So I don't know how far you got in the closed beta or how far you got in the original Japanese release played in uh, on the English server. But first of all, this game is. Obviously, episode one came out in 2012, and episode two came out in 2013 or 14. Uh, but since those original releases, the first few episodes, this is this is me based. This is information that I've kind of gleaned from multiple sources. So please, like, correct me if anything I say is not quite right that you know is actually slightly different. But yeah. what how these episodes originally worked has been shifted, kind of in a manner described similarly to the planned shift for Final Fantasy 14, where a lot of stuff was kind of like shortened and truncated. To, to make it so that players could catch up. Not specifically for the North American release, but for like the original, I think, episode five release, where they kind of just, I, the way the, the episode one, and I think, I think parts of two and three worked, is that you would play through these original uh, story chapters, and you'd have to find like the correct path on a timeline through like these divergence matrices. Or matrices. And in order to drive the story forward, you had to kind of like, you know, investigate these different alternate you know optional timelines effectively but that's kind of been removed from the uh the game as it stands now does not involve that instead it's this and you've meant i remember you talking about this when you talked about the beta and now i understand that i've seen it in practice what you meant where the story is pretty much 99 not 99 uh, let's say 90 percent viewing a 10 to 30 second cutscene from a menu and then just doing that over and over and over again. It's honestly was very, a bit of a turnoff. It was very disjointed, very slow ramp. Uh, it almost yeah. seemed kind of pointless. Yeah. Like but, I kind of just like started avoiding the story altogether. Cause I feel like even if it would have taken longer, I think I would have preferred the way it previously was because you don't really get any sense of progressing the story in the current system. It just feels like, busy work whereas at least there would be some gameplay attached to how it was originally i'm not sure if you got the same impression no i i agree so i might i might mis misread what some of these labels are because there's like main missions and story missions and arc missions and advanced missions and extreme missions uh so that's been a bit of a learning curve is just to learn how all how all the things are fitted together so the main missions are basically kind of subdivided into the biomes that you uh that you explore so you start on on this forest planet called Navarius, then you end up on this desert planet uh or sorry this volcano planet i forget the name of it and then you end up on a, a desert planet called lilipa and then there's a, a planet that's like 
supposed to kind of look like feudal Japan. It's kind of interesting that it, they went from like, you know, I, environmental I, biomes. Go ahead. Uh, sorry. Uh, I could be wrong about this, but I actually think that each of the areas are separate biomes on the same planet. Uh, yeah, I was going to get to that. Um, there, the, that. That I actually think is a really cool feature is that the game starts out by uh, shuffling you from planet to planet, but then it'll say, here's the tundra region on the first planet, or here's the mine region on the desert planet. So you end up landing on the same planet in multiple places eventually. So there are both biomes on different and the same planet, which I actually think is kind of, it just seems kind of obvious. Like, not like Star Wars where oh, the whole planet is a desert or the whole planet is a snow field. It's like, no, there's a little bit more nuance to it. And then they actually it actually integrates into the story a little bit. So in the back half of episode one, the story actually does go somewhere. You do have a few uh, um, actual combat encounters, though most of them are usually pretty short. And it'll actually be like, this tundra was not always here on this planet. So what caused it? And then that ends up tying into the story directly. Um, but so how the story works is that they're 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 kind of you know shunted away into their own menu. But it says in order to see this chapter of the story, you must have explored the desert planet because otherwise it won't make sense to have your character. So you play a voiceless protagonist um, amongst a bunch of voiced characters, and it's like it wouldn't make sense to have your character on a desert planet that they've never been to. So what I ended up doing is I went through all these main quote unquote expedition missions kind of in order. And they're the ones that the, the level ramps up as you go through the difficulty ramps up as you go through. And then once I had seen them all, I kind of just like, this is a bit overly honest, but I just pulled up a bunch of like Netflix or YouTube videos and just started plowing through these cutscenes. And it took a few hours just to click through the menu over and over uh, to kind of just plow through it though. I will say to the game's credit, by like episode one, chapter eight or nine, these things do start getting kind of interesting. It just it's just a very, very, very slow burn to get there. Um, about some of the game itself, there there's like eight or nine classes. I don't remember the exact total. And how how it how it works is that you it's like Final Fantasy fourteen where you can pick one and then shift to the others at any time. Um, so I played a force, which is basically the, the game's version of a mage. And then with the uh, with the subclass, you can pick a subclass where you can gather some other passive bonuses, like Final Fantasy Tactics or whatever. And I picked a techie. And apparently force techie, I didn't know this when I picked it, but it's a very classic combination. Nothing fancy about it. It's basically pairing the two quote-unquote magic classes together. Uh, I kind of like it because it is offensively focused in terms of casting spells, which in this game are called techniques, but also can like do buffs and heals, so you can kind of play both roles. Uh, I will say, though, that the game has this very interesting uh, progression curve. Like you can, you can get from level 1 to level 30 in like an hour. It's like, you'll do one quest or turn in one, like, so... One of the major components of the game are client orders, where you talk to NPCs on the ship and they say, I want you to kill X of these things or, or explore this place and get an S rating or whatever. Very kind of rudimentary, fetchy stuff. But the idea is, is that you gather a bunch of them. Like one, one character wants you to go to the desert and kill you know X, X number of automatons. And then one person wants you to complete a specific quest on the desert and get an S rating. And then another one wants you to gather a certain material from the desert. So you kind of like 
lump these together and knock them all out in one go. And then you come back and you get a bunch of EXP for it. And then I was actually wondering, like, I'm leveling up way too fast. At one point, I was, like, level 30, and the main quests were still, like, enemies, like, level 10 or 15. I was taking, like, no damage, and I'm like, there's no challenge here at all. But it does it does eventually really ramp down, where right around level 40 or so, it, it begins to feel like a real RPG progression with actual balance. It's just that first bit kind of just wishes right by. It's So the first impression was worse than where I ended up feeling after kind of getting past that uh, awkward hump of, I don't know, super speed progression. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot to talk about because obviously uh, it's a big game and it's been around a long time, so it's got a lot of content behind it. I'm just trying to think of the things that have been most uh, kind of notable to me going through it. I guess one of the things just more generally is that I thought that this game, just from the outside looking in, was more pure MMO, but it's really more Monster Hunter-like in terms of having a collaborative hub area with more like, a bunch uh, of names. Monster Hunter is more... Uh... <laughs> more like a fantasy star online but uh, yeah, yeah i get a <laughs> good point but uh even even not not only the hub slash mission based gameplay but also the fact that the gameplay style really changes based on your weapon selection and which and the which weapons you can equip they are determined by your class so you can't be you can't be a force and then also wield you know twin assault rifles there's, there's just hard lockouts uh but so one thing I'll ask you is, um, what do you think about? Well, this is a two-part question. What do you think about the way that you increase your weapon strength, and also how do you feel about the default inventory size? So the weapon strength is a is a section that I'm still kind of learning about because it's very convoluted. At least to my brain, it is. So you'll get a you'll get a weapon which has a base level of stats and most gear is divided into the the triage of melee ranged or tech so basically are you a a close combat fighter a ranged combat fighter or a spellcaster basically um and then what you do is you 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 basically transmogrify is that the right word weapons together to make them stronger like you'll have so i'm a force so i use weapon classes rods and taluses but if i get other weapons that i can't use what i can do is i can and this is just my my knowledge of the system so far, which might be rudimentary. You can go to a, a vendor and spend materials and money to combine those weapons into my equipped one to make it stronger. And then what, what it ends up being is kind of this balancing act where you can only level up a weapon this way so much. So you don't want to feed it a bunch of weak stuff. And I say feed it as if it's like eating the other weapons. That's just how it is in my head. Uh, because if you feed it a bunch of like base, like if you buy just a hundred of the base ass rod from the shop and feed it, you'll end up capping out your weapons potential at a lower place where if you actually wait to get rarer drops and feed it those, and then, there, then you can, then you can go ahead. And then I was going to say that another kind of wrinkle to the system is, is that, um, like once you hit specific level points in upgrading the the weapon, there will be points where you're going to have a chance for the upgrade itself to fail. So, yeah, and leveling up armor is a bit is a bit simpler because you just it's just materials and money. If I remember right, you don't actually combine other armors into it unless 
Here's a caveat. You're specifically augmenting for a specific skill. But if you just want to raise the, the base level, you just feed it a material called a grinder. But then at, at one point, the UI, it says like upgrade potential safe, safe. I'm like, what does this mean? And then like after like level 10, it says like, I forget what the exact UI says, but it says like warning. It's like, what? Warning for what? Will, will it break? I don't know. Uh, so I stopped upgrading my, ar- my armor because I didn't know what the warning meant. But and then th- this all kind of ends up tying into the fact that I have to mention that this is a free-to-play game. So it, it does have the, the typical uh, multiple types of currencies where some of them you can use to buy like raffle tickets to, to get you know skins and cosmetics. Some of them allow you to buy premium. Like This kind of maybe ties into your second question about storage and inventory space. So I actually kind of found that the default storage space, like your quote-unquote bank, is actually fine, at least so far it has been for several dozen hours for me. But I'm also not really much of a hoarder. Like if I get a co- like a, a weapon camo that I'm not planning on using, I'll just toss it or or sell it if I think I, it's worth doing that. So your I think your default inventory your default bank is like 200 stacks of items, which to me I haven't really had an issue with. But your default character inventory that you can actually bring out on missions which is 50. And that I find is a bit low. I think it's kind of where they're really trying to say, hey, spend some premium currency to expand this. One thing yeah. that, that it has been one thing that has been a bit of a transition for me is that so I've talked about this on the podcast before, but Guild Wars has is also it's buy to play, not free to play. You have to buy the, well, actually the base game is free to play, but you you spend premium currency there to unlock inventory slots permanently. But the weird thing about Fantasy Star, which has kind of been a bit disappointing at first, at least to my expectations, is that you basically buy a 30-day pass to have more storage space, which to me is like, okay, so... Oh, really? That's not true. Yeah, you can actually buy specific, like, um, it goes by, like, 10 extra inventory spaces per pop of it. But there is a separate thing you can buy in the premium shop, which will permanently add 10,10 more slots in your inventory. Oh, maybe it was specific to some, a specific type. The, the example in my head was the material storage. You had to, it was a recurring payment of some sort. Yeah, it, it's very confusing. There's different types of like uh, subscription passes that you can get that do different things. It's very, very confusing. I won't lie. Um, honestly, it's part of the reason why I haven't gone back. Uh, the other reason is, is that I had no idea that... Uh, when they gave out the Dreamcast mag for doing the uh, closed beta, that it was only going to be available for a month in game and it wasn't going to be available for like a while. Because um, I remember in the Japanese version, whenever there was a uh, giveaway, it would be available for at least like half a year. So I wasn't expecting it to be gone after a month and it'd be like, well, crap. <laughs> yeah. The nice thing is, is that a lot of things are obtainable in game where you, so there's like i said there's a ton of currency and i'm still at the point where i'm probably going to get them confused but there's sg which i don't remember what that stands for right now that's but it's a sort of premium currency that you can earn in game and then spend on uh con- useful consumables or a few unlocks like one of the things that i spent with it uh was the uh the mission pass which is kind of like your your season tiering kind of like a multiplayer shooter where you, you, you play missions, you get points, and then it'll tear up it's and you get rewards. Pass. 
Yeah, but then there are some that are hard locked behind AC, which is, as far as I can tell, only earnable with currency. So the game kind of goes halfway in saying you can earn a lot of the premium stuff in game if you just grind a lot. It's like, okay, that's fine. I'm I'm fine with that. But then there is some hard stuff where it's like this is a cash shop item. You you have to well, actually, now that I say that, I have seen a few, I think. I think this is the case where there's cash shop items that you can also buy like from other players, but then it ends up being a big gold sink or meseta, whatever they call the currency, the base currency in this game. But it hasn't been to the point where a lot of this stuff has been super obnoxious or in my face. Like I see that it's there and I kind of understand it. It's, I don't feel like I'm real outside of the, the inventory space. I might, I might honestly buy a few expansions if I can sort that out. But, um, like inventory expansions, but it's been fine. I haven't, I haven't felt awful. I haven't felt great about it, but I haven't felt awful about it either. The way that they've implemented their, um, their monetization plan, I guess. Uh, I guess one of the last things I should talk about is just like how it feels to play. So I've played, uh, mostly just two classes. I've played the force and then I've also played a little bit as the gunner. And that's kind of where I got the Monster Hunter comparison, where it's like it plays very differently depending on your class. Because, for instance, the Force, the, the weapon types that it uses, don't have a lot of what they call photon arts or like weapon-specific abilities that you can use on the fly. It's mostly about buffing your techniques or spells. Where when you play as the Gunner, you can cast spells, yes, but you do get a lot more in terms of class skills and weapon skills. Like, it, like what you're interacting with in terms of in combat from from battle to battle is a bit different because on the force i don't have much in the way of class skills i have like one buffing ability called like photon wave or something like that and i just kind of use it before any battle to buff myself but that's it after that point it's pretty much just casting spells where on the gunner it's here's a class skill that will start ranking up a chain and then uh while this chain is racked up you can then throw in your photon up abilities and then you can chain those together. It's a bit more involved. So you might think it's a funner class to play, but you all, but it's also a more difficult one. So it's kind of like got a higher skill ceiling, I guess, but it's also less comfortable. And then of course I have no idea what the other like dozens of weapon types feel like to play, but very monster hunter like in that uh, regard, in my impression so far. Um, once the, once the, uh, battles or the uh, expedition stop becoming trivially easy. It actually it actually has been like the, the visually the game really holds up. It's super fluid. Like on my computer. Oh, that's another thing I gotta talk about is getting this getting this game to work right. Uh, let's 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 uh, kick that can down the road a bit. Um, I'm surprised at how well it runs with tons of models and like uh, character models and enemy models. Like I was worried. Like but then when the first like raid battle appeared. So the, the game has urgent quests, which are basically like in this next half hour, you can go to the counter and go to a timed, you know, multiplayer quote unquote raid to, to get like unique rewards or whatever. And tons of players, uh, as an aside, the population seems pretty healthy. There's a lot of people around. Um, tons of players would like go to the counter ready to jump in and do that. And, you know, they're, they're dancing and, you know, it's actually really kind of, I, I love seeing a whole bunch of player characters gather up in their like super fancy armors and like glowy bits and doing emotes. Like, how do I get that emote? How do I get that hat? How do I get that weapon? But uh, it it didn't chug, it didn't slow down. It ran very well. And then like even in battle, it's hectic. It's fast. Uh, the only thing that has been a bit tricky is the tab targeting aspect of it. Sometimes I find it tr difficult to target what I want to target. And I'm playing on a mouse and keyboard, so 
I don't know if the game, since it was originally a Vita game, might be more designed for an analog stick and face buttons. Uh, but sometimes like there'll be something right in front of me and then I press tab to try to target it and it targets the thing behind me, behind it instead or to my side and I have to like shuffle through them to finally get to look at what I want to look at. Not to mention so. that some boss enemies have multiple points where you can lock onto them, so. Yeah, like, oh, this boss has six arms. Like, I want to attack the second one from the left. Good luck getting that on your first, you know, your first try. Uh, it'll probably take a few. It's 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 been a bit of a finicky thing, but it hasn't been awful. I've, I've kind of gotten used to it. And you, you can do a lot of stuff just by even not locking onto the target at all, just positioning yourself properly. Um, so getting this to work on Windows Store. So I did not have the absolute awful experience that Josh Torres had where he had the game like installed twice and um, he had like issues like where he had to like go into the registry using like PowerShell to remove, to get his like hard drive space back. And if you go to the Microsoft store for this game, it's got like one and a half out of five stars, almost entirely related to just technical issues. So this is what I did in order to get the game to work nearly flawlessly. I uninstalled from the Xbox app, Microsoft app, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then I installed this custom launcher called PSO2 Tweaker. It can do a lot of things in terms of more custom, like, I don't know what you call it, UI front end. But one of the things that it's just, it also can download the client for you and keep it updated. And you can even play it. And this is, how, this is I assume, how people would play the Japanese version of the game. Because again, it's a, it's a free game. It's not like you're, you're pirating it or anything like that. Um, but... I've had a lot more issue with my like graphical settings sticking, quote unquote, with with using the PSO2 tweaker, with with uh, it running on the proper monitor. Uh, it's just been a lot more of a fluid experience where I don't have to worry about my download getting stuck or not updating properly. Uh, it's the only thing. That, go ahead. It's honestly hilarious that the the very team that kind of originally got PSO2 working in English for the Japanese release and had their own like specialized launcher for that is the, are the ones that got um the western release uh actually stable for most people yeah. so i don't exactly know it, it honestly took a bit of a tweaking so i'm not saying it's going to be you know very smooth no matter what you do unfortunately but if you wanted to play this i think the best way to do it would be to quote unquote purchase the game from microsoft again it's free but just add it to your account or whatever but don't download it through there. Download it through PSO2 Tweaker. The only thing that is still an outstanding issue is that, first of all, for me, the game only seems to work properly in, in, in full screen. Uh, if I try to play in a window or a borderless window or what the game calls a virtual full screen, like different variations of that idea, it just doesn't seem to render right. Like the, the aspect ratio gets askew or I have a 4K monitor and if I tell it to render a 4K window, it ends up just being super blown up. Like that doesn't make sense to me. But if I tell it to play in full 4K full screen, it works absolutely how it should. With the caveat that the PC UI doesn't DPI scale very well to 4K. So if you're playing in 4K, the UI is tiny. It's, it's okay enough if you're sitting at a desk, but if you had your computer like, going to a TV from a couch, it would be really, really hard to read. I, I've seen some people say that they say you shouldn't play in anything higher than 1440 because of the way the UI doesn't scale. But however, uh, apparently on the Xbox version of the game, 
Uh, so maybe you're going to get right to this, but apparently on the Xbox version of this, if you play in 4K, the UI actually does scale properly. So it's a, it's a weird disconnect between the Xbox and PC versions of the game. Yes and no. There's an option in the settings, at least on Xbox. I was assuming it was going to be on PC too. That lets you change the size of the UI and it tells you what you should uh, set it for for each resolution. So on Xbox, at least that's an option. I could have sworn that was an option on PC. It, it is an option on PC. It's just that it seems to cap itself way too low, where the highest it can be is like one and a half times. And it's like, it, it says like, this will kick in as long as your resolution horizontally is greater than 1920 or whatever. But it doesn't have any further level, like another notch up. Basically, you, you can only scale that which is the same for 1440 or the same for any resolution above 1080p and it's actually kind of hard to, to troubleshoot issues with this game if you google because lots of people are having multitudes of issues so it's unfortunate but ever since i downloaded so once i made these decisions to download and use pso2 tweaker to just play in full screen because that's where it runs the best and to just deal with the small ui it's I've had no issues with it. I can all tab in and out very uh, well. It doesn't. It doesn't hog you know a ton of resources. It runs. I, I have a twenty two eighty Ti, so it's obviously it runs this two thousand twelve game fine. I'm I'm almost always above sixty frames per second at four K, uh, so it runs really well. And I think the game just visually holds up. It's just you have to know about these technical issues going in. Uh, though I do think if you know about PSO two tweaker going ahead of time you'll save yourself a good chunk of the headache to just bypass the Microsoft store to some extent. Though it is kind of cool that um, this is more of a general comment, but it is kind of like cool that the game works with the uh, Microsoft's like game bar achievement interface, HUD, whatever you want to call it. So like I'm earning quote unquote gamer score for PSO2 as I play it, which I'm not interested in that specifically, but I just do think it's kind of cool to have this crossplay where I'm playing this game on PC, uh, getting this. And then if I brought an Xbox, like Series X next year or whatever, it's the same ecosystem. So that's that's just more of a general comment where I'm so used to if I'm playing on my PC or if I'm playing on my uh, PlayStation or if I'm playing my Switch, that everything's separate. They're all their own individual islands where this is just one of the first things that I personally put a lot of time in where the two islands have now collided to some extent. Now, collided might be the most appropriate word, as how shoddy the implementation has been in some ways, but it's it's a start, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I will say it's been very fascinating to see how Microsoft has been handling PC over the last, like, I'd say several years. Like, ever since, like, um, they kind of committed to all their games coming out on PC at the mostly at the same time, though I guess PSO2 was an exception. Um because it's not theirs. But uh, I am curious to see how things um, move forward with that, with the next generation incoming. Because I well, one thing think, that... I feel like PC Game Pass has done a lot to really kind of ingrain at least a subset of the PC gaming like uh, populace into uh, Microsoft's um, kind of ecosystem. Whereas they might have never touched the Windows Store before. If you have Game Pass for five bucks a month and you're playing all these games, it's like, well, you're kind of forced to get ingrained. I'm actually curious how much that's going to have an impact going forward. 
it's we're also seeing not quite the same story but like ea is releasing their games on steam now so these islands within an island of pc storefronts are, are also kind of colliding a bit where you've got you open a game on steam and it launches the origin launcher or whatever it, it's actually funny because it kind of got overshadowed by persona 4 golden launching on steam but sea of thieves has been having an absolute like runaway success on steam like uh, last i checked it's peaked over 60k concurrent users and that's just people playing on steam not even the tons of people that have game pass and basically play it for little to nothing on windows or the xbox app so uh obviously it feels like uh steam is working out for microsoft and i i'd imagine they're going to keep supporting it going forward yeah, so I guess the parallel there is that people are willing to pay either more or again to play at a place where some people you might think is just tribalism or like, oh, they have to have everything on Steam because they're fanboys. And I'm going to say that that's non-zero. That is true. But working with the shortcomings of the Microsoft Store, in my specific case here, if Fantasy Star Online 2 came to Steam, that would be a selling point where it's just like, hey, you don't have to deal with the Microsoft Store if you buy this version. It's the same game, same client or whatever, but just a different front end does matter. It's not just an icon on your desktop. I'm sorry if people think that, but if you think your storefront on your PC is just a, just a different icon on your desktop, uh, let's just, just try getting into Fantasy Star Online too. Just, just, just tell me how that goes. Sorry if that sounds like really like up and up, you know, uppity, but I, I just. I I think I the, the evidence is just right there. It's not just an icon. Yeah, that's why I was like, because I already had experience with the Microsoft Store even before the Xbox app was a thing. Like, yeah, there's plenty of issues with the Epic Games Store and its launcher. But from the get-go, I was like, oh, at least it's better than Microsoft's poor excuse of a storefront. Because holy crap, it it, it was even worse back in the day. It was yeah. even worse. It just... At least the Epic Game Store works. Yeah, it's it's limited in terms of what it can do, but it's not going to double, at least to my knowledge, it's not going to double install games to your hard drive. Or here's something sure, else that I yeah. just narrow. Yeah, here's something I narrowly avoided, but uh, remember when Fallout 76 came out in Bethesda Store and then it like updated and auto-deleted from people's computers? Well, now that's available on Steam, so... Uh, like there's another like which one which one should i get this on well one of the one of the storefronts this game is on doesn't have this history of deleting games from your hard drive so there you go anyways for final closing thoughts on fantasy star i'm not enjoying it a ton but i think i see the potential so i'm still trying to plow through it i've used that idiom a bunch but i guess that's really kind of hits home how i feel about it right now i am interested to see that so they announced that if I if I recall correctly, the game in Japan is up to episode up through episode six, like one episode released every year or every other year since 2012. And the, Microsoft has stated that by the end of this year, they will be through episode six, if I recall correctly, which is just insane. So, but they've but they've also stated that they plan on supporting the game for like seven or eight years. Like, I guess is it, is this kind of again to evoke the comparison? The Monster Hunter thing, where they're where they're trying to reach parity with the Japanese side, and then it'll just be you know in lockstep going forward. Because they're they're because if that is what the goal is, they're they're going at that light speed. 
Yeah. All right, uh, Adam. Now that I've taken a bunch of the time, did you have any uh, thoughts about what you've played uh, in the last seven days? I know you had put up last week your impressions video and uh, about Persona Four Golden's Steam release. Topical. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much mostly what I've been doing the past week. Is uh, after putting up some initial impressions of the PC port for Persona Four Golden. Uh, just basically just been wrapping that up over the last week. Just, you know, it's a big game. beating the game, wrapping up some trophies and things like that. Uh, um, I did, I did do a, a quick blitz through of the second playthrough to fight the, the fight to secret boss, which is Margaret, which has kind of become typical in these persona games is you fight the velvet room attendant. There's actually some weird, like persona deep lore in those sections that I wonder if they'll ever be followed up on. Um, but whatever. Uh, the a game I started yesterday, just for the heck of it, really, was I just I started playing Super Paper Mario, which is the third game in the Paper Mario series. Um, actually, the reason why I'm playing you it are is, now like uh, the Paper Mario expert. Like, well, I mean, I I played all the games in the series already beforehand. But the, the, to be honest, like the actual specific reason why I'm playing it is that. Several years ago, I lost all my save file data on Wii. And over time, slowly, I kind of replayed a bunch of the games. Um, first of all, just to replay them. I like, you know, replaying games and kind of revisiting my thoughts on them. But also uh, to kind of just have my save files back in a way, even if that's kind of a, a weird reason to do it. But Super Paper Mario is not that long. Um, and also, after coming off of Color Splash in the last couple of weeks, it is interesting to play one of the earlier games and i'm pretty sure i've said on this podcast before that um i'm a i actually do like super paper mario it feels like it's kind of that game's kind of in the middle it's not as beloved as uh the first two games but it's not as bemoaned as the later two games kind of literally in the middle um because it is a different style of game it's more of a side scroller rpg rather than a traditional turn-based rpg but I will say, even just after putting a few hours into it, the writing style and the in terms of like the game's tone is so different from Color Splash and Sticker Star. It's more interesting in that it, it actually is telling a story. Like there's like characters that have like motivations and plot lines and things going forward. So it, it's very much an RPG in that sense. Whereas a lot of the dialogue in like Color Splash isn't telling a story. It's just kind of dialogue that is just characters talking and not necessarily like anything interesting about it and it's 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 hard to explain that specifically but it's the whole feeling you get um playing super paper mario is just it's very different <laughs> and i'm enjoying it it's quirky the the localization is fun um it's a pretty snappy paced game like i think i've only played about five or six hours of it. I'm already, I think, pretty much at the halfway point. So it's not very long. Um, yeah, I just kind of figured I'd give it a playthrough. Just why not? Kind of, I'd played some really long JRPGs recently with Persona 4 and Xenoblade and things like that. It's like, I'll just pop, you know, something lighter and nicer. So so I haven't played Super Mario in like, since the release, so over a decade. Um, I do think I get what you mean about the dialogue. Like, it seems like 
Paper Mario and Thousand Year Door are almost theme parky, where it's like here's here's kind of the, what the this environment of this chapter looks like, and how these are what this character is and these characters look like in this chapter, and Super Paper Mario is still divided into chapters, and all the games have an overarching story, but Super Paper Mario seems like it's 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 less whimsical, it's less just event to event to event strung together. It seems to be more of a Maybe I'm speaking out of my ass because it's been so long, but I do remember the general plot beats about where it goes and it ends up being kind of like poignant and sad and emotional and which you can't really say about the other games. They're, they're just more kind of more upbeat and fun and jovial. So it, I think there is just a little bit more meat, a more depth, more, more color to the storytelling in that game. It's just too bad that a lot of people that's overshadowed by the fact that it's a different style of game on top of that. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot more to say about it. It was just, it's, it's kind of like a, like I said, it's kind of a wind down game for me. Like, you know, I've been dumping hours and hours into these long RPGs. It's like, let me just, you know, this is like, this is, like I said, a wind down game. Just easier to kind of just relax and play well, it rather than these RPGs where you kind of get really deep into yeah. the stories and systems. Well, finish up soon so that. You're not like Paper Mario burnt out before uh, Origami King comes out. Are you planning on playing that one? It seems like you're kind of that's where you're setting yourself up to be. Yeah, um, it's kind of weird. Like I, I'm not really excited for it, but I'm, I want to play it almost like academically in terms of like what are the, how is this game like the other ones or not? I've been Have there, they learned yeah. from yeah. some of the issues they've made, or is it just more of the same? So yeah, you sound like where I'm at before I started playing the Pokemon DLC. <laughs> I think that's that's I think something that us that contribute to the website like this do kind of get in that mindset where it's like there's games that you're just inherently you know I want to play this because it looks fun as hell or cool as hell or deep you know whatever. There's also games you want to play about because you find their premise interesting or their positioning interesting or or something. Whereas, where it's a little bit of a, dif- a different, a different type of interest, and that's kind of where I was with Fantasy Star Online too. Where it's like, all right, this is a successful game that's been out for a long time in Japan, but not here, and it's kind of localized in a very unique fashion. So I want to learn about what this is all about. So I think we've all been there. Is what I'm getting at. All right, since George isn't here to gush about Kingdom Hearts. Let's talk about Kingdom Hearts. All right. So, uh, did you want to do the I guess it started first? Oh, yeah, I should. Sorry, Kingdom Hearts. Okay, so we have a couple uh we have a review from Danny, Danny Maddox for the he did the she did the Switch version of Summer and Mara, is that correct? Yeah, I think so. So this is kind of like a island theme farming sim. Which I've seen a lot of people compare to like the aesthetic of Lilo and Stitch. So I didn't read her review. I don't know if Adam, you have more to say about it since you would have edited it. But it, to me, this game seems really charming, really nice. Kind of a cool different take on the farming sim with it, with a unique identity. Yeah, basically Chelsea's review is mostly positive with Danny's. one pretty significant... Or Danny, sorry, wrong, wrong reviewer. Um, with one really significant sticking point to her was that uh, 
the one thing about the game that she really didn't like was there's lots of points where you have to travel back to your home island to do certain things in terms of like progressing the story or creating an item. And I guess there's no fast way to go to the island. So every time you have to go there, you have to sail there. Um, she didn't say this in her review, but it, the way I read it, it was kind of like if you had to go back to Windfall Island in, in the Wind Waker, she compared the game a lot to Wind Waker. Um, but like, instead of being able to just warp there with a the song, you have to travel there by boat every time. And it, it kind of just seemed like, why is this the case? Just some weird pacing issues like that. And also some other, she had some other issues with like quest pacing and, and things like that. Like a lot of the mechanics otherwise in story premise, she seemed very, very, very high on, but just some weird hiccups like that in the mid, mid in the mid of the game, which is why she gave it a seven out of 10. So maybe that's something they can shape up with some patches. It, it is it is a small game from a from an indie studio based in Spain, I think. So we'll see. But, but yeah, it, it just it. has like it, yeah, it just has kind of a unique flair to it, where it's it's more colorful and artsy, and it's less pure. Like when I look at Stardew Valley, it seems more pure, semi. I don't know if that makes sense. It's less about character and more about meat where this one just seems a little bit more kind of flavorful and artsy seems like a nice charming game that people that like farming sims should definitely try out and then the other article shout out is something that james has been talking about a podcast a few times and that's sorry if you've heard this before xenoblade chronicles cross so uh i guess i'll let you just talk about what you you this is in my mind you kind of just formalized what you've talked about the game over the last uh, couple, you know, the last month on this TetraCast into a nice written, a nice write-up for it. And it seems to have really resonated with a lot of people in terms of agreeing with your premise and that being that Xenoblade Chronicles Cross should not be forgotten. Yeah. I was actually kind of shocked how much it blew up on the Twitter. Like I, like I knew offhand from what Adam was saying that apparently we had quite a few like Xenoblade Chronicles uh, Cross fans uh, that would like retweet like uh, images or like anniversary tweets for it or whatnot. But uh, I didn't expect it to really just kind of explode. Um, but yeah, the article, if you've been listening to us on the Tetracast like regularly, you pretty much already know what, what the article is about. You probably know, you already understand the premise. Uh, it's basically just a kind of tidied up and condensed uh, version of my argument that Xenoblade Cross uh, deserves another chance and that even with just a few small tweaks, I feel like, especially since the um, expectation has been set that if it were to come out again, like today, it would probably have a much better reception than it did back in 2015. That's it. I mean, if, if you want to read it, read it. If you've been listening to the Tetracast, you, you, you basically already know what it's going to say. Yeah, fair enough. My only quote-unquote worry, and worry is overstating it, but Xenoblade and Xenoblade 2 have this very clear identity in terms of what sorts of games they are, very story-focused, very plot-driven, especially to the, like, to, the, to the extent that both of them have now have uh, expanded story editions in terms of Torna and Future Connected. And then I haven't played this game, but Cross is very much not that. It's world-driven and environmental storytelling and 
uh, there's character moments in the side quest that you talked about, but not not so much a main narrative thrust. It's there, but not at the forefront. So I just wonder if people would, if hypothetically Cross was remastered for the Switch for 2021, if people would go into it with misaligned expectations. Do you know what I'm getting at? Well, I mean, I feel like that's inevitable. I but I, you know, that's exactly how people went into it when it first released. And that's, that's good people point. still seem pretty fond of it. Um, I think people would have a better idea of what it is now, just from word of mouth, from people who have played it. But there is always going to be that person who plays it expecting to be more of the same, and it's not that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's just inevitable that some people, if it were to get re-released, would, hope, would want it to be more like the other two games in the series, and it's just not... And I mean, that's one reason why I like it a lot. I, I kind of like the style it has, that it is something different. But for those same exact reasons, some people would very much be on the opposite side of that. Um, I have seen some people on our Twitter feed mention how they kind of hope. Um, so there is evidence that this game did have a stronger story at one point. By stronger story, I mean like a more focused narrative storyline in the game. Yeah, wasn't it and, kind of like a, not last minute, but a late decision to make it a uh, customizable protagonist? It was something like that, where they they kind of decided on a on the style of game that it ultimately ended up being, um, not right away, but partway through development. So there's evidence that there was other story, more story-focused things in the game. I've seen some people mentioning on our Twitter that they should add those back in. And I'm kind of sitting here like, no, please don't. I kind of like it for how it is and keep it how it is, you know? Um, I know that's not everyone's cup of tea, but allow this one to be a little different. That's my take on it. I think in general, people look at cut content or, or concept arts for things that didn't make it into the game. And I think people, and I know speaking about people so generally is dangerous, but I feel like, I feel like a lot of the times if you've worked on any sort of creative project, even semi-creative, you know you start out with a lot of ideas and then you narrow it down and focus it on the stuff you think works best. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, how are you withholding this from me? Like this cool concept art for this character or this monster or whatever that was net that wasn't ever ever finally implemented. Like you should re you should re-add that after since you took it out. It's like no, I, I just think that mindset's kind of backwards. I, it's not, do you know what I'm getting? I hundred percent. Yeah, like if you've written anything creatively, a short story, long story, or uh, anything creative, like you said, you're going to have thoughts or ideas or maybe character moments if you're writing a story or scenes or, you know, events or and some things that aren't going to make it in the final, you know, product because, you know, you just kind of have like loose ideas and maybe you'll get partway through developing them or creating them. And then you just realize maybe they just don't fit or you don't need them. And so even if there's evidence of cut content, I don't think that's necessarily means that like that content should be there, you know? And I, I think that's what you're I, I feel. About. I feel the same way with, I feel the same way with movies where people are like, I want the extended cut with all the deleted scenes added in. It's like, well, sometimes those scenes were deleted for a reason. I, I'm not saying there are some cases where you look at a few things that like, for instance, the fellowship of the rings extended cut, I think does a lot for that movie. But I would also maybe argue that to Two Towers, I don't think, I think that theatrical version is better there. And that's, I know that's kind of a tangent example, but I think it's one that people would have, would have you know, knowledge of. 
Um, it's just that more is not always better, you know? <laughs> so, and just because but, you see something that, that wasn't implemented in the game doesn't mean that it was taken out unfairly or like it, it belongs in the game. Not to mention that anyways, cross as it is, is already a huge game with so much content. I promise if I play this, I will not continue our Xenoblade uh, cross focus that we've had last few months. But I guess hopefully Nintendo gives us a reason to. Let's we'll see. And I guess this is where I have to shout out their um, 10th anniversary art that puts Elma front and center. So does that mean anything? I don't think so, but some people do. All right, and then the last article shout-out, we have three this week, that's kind of cool, is a preview that Adam put out for Chris Tales. And me and you have both seen this game about a year apart. I saw it at E3 last year, and you saw it this year during when we would have had E3. Uh, so what do you think about this? This is a indie JRPG-inspired game uh, with a very colorful anime-slash-US cartoon art-style hybrid sort of thing. So what do you think about what you saw of Chris Tales over the last week? Yeah, I mean, I talked about this a little bit on the podcast last week. Um, it, it was a little bit weird because the preview was under embargo, but it was showing off stuff in a video that they had. A lot of it was stuff that already released, so it was you know public, but some of it was embargoed um, for the preview event that I attended digitally. Uh, I think it's an interesting mix between... So whenever someone just says, like, we're inspired by a classic game and we want to recreate it, you know, sometimes it's like, I don't know, maybe tying itself too strongly to something that's beloved and maybe that's setting it else, setting itself up for failure in some way, because oftentimes these little indie projects can't live up to that. But I feel like Chris Tales, from a, from a distance here, and obviously it's before it released or before it releases, uh, it, it seems to be a good mix of like, okay, here, let me back up a, a step here. So we got to, I got to hear from the game creator or the game director of the game. Uh, let me pull up his name here real quick. He's a uh, developer from Dreams Incorporated in Colombia. So the studio head is Carlos Rocha Silva. And what he basically explained to us who were attending this event was that in Colombia, a lot of the media they consume comes from other places like the U.S. and like Japan. Um, so he mentioned things like anime. He didn't give any specific animes, um, but I want, I think Digimon is a, based on the art style, maybe one that he was a fan of, but he mentioned stuff like that. Samurai Jack, a cartoon network shows based on, uh, Craig McCracken and Lauren Faust and like shows like that, as well as classic video games, um, from Japan, mostly in that era were how they sort of connected to the world. And he wanted to use this game, Chris Tales, to sort of both take those inspirations and make an, like a, an homage to them, but also kind of reflect Colombian culture and heritage back to the world. And I just think that's really cool. He talked about, I mentioned in the podcast last week, about the, the areas in the game being based off of real-life Colombian cities. A lot of the architecture is based off of real-life Colombian uh, buildings and architecture. And how the main character, Crispell, was kind of his vision for how would a Disney princess look like if they're from Colombia. So I just think that's kind of a real cool, at least, concept or idea they have. So hopefully when the game releases, 
it's actually a decent game and not just awful, but it seems to have potential. And people have played the demo on Steam, which has been around for a while, but they've recently expanded on it. And it's got positive impressions. So so it's not just marketing fluff. I think people do generally see the potential here. When I played this last year, when I first demoed on Steam, the only thing that I thought was a bit lacking was some of the voice acting was a little amateur. But I'm, I'm kind of at the point where it's like, all right, it's an indie game uh, from a... I don't even know. Like, I'll be honest. I don't know much about Columbia. I'll admit my ignorance there. And I've, I've pulled up the Wikipedia page more than once just kind of trying to read about it a little bit. Um, so... I just think it's cool in general. Like, sorry to bring this up. I apologize, but like, Bug Fables was made from a Panama, you know, trio. This is coming out of Colombia. I think it's just cool that the tool sets for making video games are at a place where we can see other actors kind of stepping onto the stage and providing their own input. And especially in the case of um, De Silva here, who is using the the opportunity to kind of share his environment his upbringing with the world in in a, in a small way and you also mentioned a, a criticism that you thought you thought that the combat and the premise were super interesting but that the side quests were a little bit like kind of the the side quests that they showed in this little vertical slice seemed like they had very simple results or solutions like um there was one where they had to go get a blueprint, but since the blueprint was damaged, you have to go back in time to get the blueprint instead. And it, it kind of felt obvious and easy, like, oh, okay, that was, there was nothing interesting about that. Just go back in time, grab it, go back to the present, and there you go. So hopefully it does some interesting things. Uh, but, you know, I just haven't seen it yet. But we'll see. Well, when we talked about this last week, we talked about some of the interesting stuff they did with uh, combat about the poison or about rusting the shield of the boss. So we've seen creative use of the idea there. So if they can just implement it into the uh, like the field exploration and side quests, I think that'll be a. I think that they've shown that they that they that they've thought of the, the possibilities that on that front. So yeah, we've got a preview for Chris Tales. We've got the retrospective on Xenoblade and the review Xenoblade Cross that is, and the review for Summer in Mara. Am I allowed to talk about Kingdom Hearts now? Yep. Too bad George is in right. here. <laughs> Too bad. All right. So uh, this this was originally announced like two days ago, but on the website, correct me if I have any details wrong here, but on the website for Out of All Things, the Dark Road expansion, extra story content for the mobile game Union Cross, uh, the icon for melody of memory was data mined from that website and then the game was formally announced like a day or two later so this is kingdom hearts melody of memory for playstation 4 xbox one and also nintendo switch so this is a theater rhythm style musical rhythm game in the kingdom hearts universe uh so but as any Kingdom Hearts quote unquote spin-off should be, it seems like it also might be more than that. And that's not just, you know, presuming. You watch this trailer for it, and about a minute in, after after showing like the rhythm style gameplay and how many song tracks there are and uh how it's again going to the well of Kingdom Hearts one and two character models, it then the the trailer will legitimately like 
phase out and phase back in with story content sort of trailers, uh, cutscenes that focus on Kyrie, which people had kind of guessed that this would be a Kyrie focused game, or not not that this specifically, but that a Kyrie focused game was in the works. And then when this title came out, I thought that this was a little bit stretching, where apparently in Kyrie's Keyblade in the short section where he plays her in Kingdom Hearts three has like some musical accompaniment to it. So when the, when the title was Melody of Memory, they're like, oh my God, this is the Kyrie game. And it is, just not in the way I think anyone expected. Um, I don't know if you have any further thoughts about uh, what you saw in the trailer. I mean, I'm not really big into rhythm games personally. So that element of it, I'm just kind of take it or leave it. But um, I guess I'm not I'm not really into like having to know absolutely everything about Kingdom Hearts canon either. But there's probably going to be some small thing in this game that leads to the next story Kingdom Hearts thing. I think the premise is, is that they have to learn more about Sora's, you know, they have to learn more about Sora in order to find out where he went. Um, not, not to spoil Kingdom Hearts 3 or the DLC or whatever, but they have to learn more about Sora. And I guess they do that through a rhythm game, whether or not it'll be significant addition to the canon, who knows, but to some people that's, that's enough of a hook that they'll buy this game, no matter what their experience is with rhythm games, or if they, even if they like them or not, like they have to know everything. But personally, I'm just kind of, I'm not that attached to the IP that I... Well, I was I was kind of with you, honestly, before I watched the trailer. But then when I started going through all the different songs that it has, well, not all of them, but a sampling of them, I actually kind of felt like, all right, I get this where this is coming from. Like, it, it, they, were, they were doing the Hollow Bastion theme. They were doing the theme where you fight Zenmus at the end of Kingdom Hearts 2. And... Like, damn, these are like Kingdom Hearts is some wonderful soundtracks built up over the course of a decade plus, you know. So this game, I think, in that respect, makes sense. Uh, one interesting thing is that even in the English version of the announcement trailer for this game, when it shifts over into the story cutscenes, it's still in Japanese. I don't think that really means much. It could just be a consequence of COVID stuff, not being able to record the VA for it. That's just a guess. Who really knows at this point? Um and then I also saw when we announced this on our Twitter, uh, Kite Steinbuck was the one that tweeted it and he called it a spinoff. And then people kind of jumped on him a bit saying like, there are no spinoffs in the Kingdom Hearts universe. I'm like, in my mind, a game can be a spinoff, but still be canonical to the story. I don't think spinoff is, is, is exactly equal to non-canon fan fiction. You know what I mean? Like I would call Fallout New Vegas a spinoff, but it's still quote unquote canon. And when I, when you see a rhythm game like this focused on a particular character, I, I don't know. I don't think calling Melody of Memories a spinoff is like people inaccurate. love their canon. I feel like the Kingdom Hearts fan base is a little too overprotective because of how many people assume, oh, it's Kingdom Hearts 1, 2, and 3. So I only need to play 1, 2, and 3 to understand the story. So they, I guess, to try and counter that, since obviously, like some of the most important story aspects of Kingdom Hearts are from the handheld games and all that. They've probably, it, it just seems like it's a culture now to kind of fight back against the spinoff thing. Because it's like, well, they don't know if X game is going to really be a spinoff or it's going to be something like Birth by Sleep or Dream Drop, Drop Distance, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's kind of like a brute force way of, if you want it to be absolutely sure that everyone from the outside looking in knows that all the games are interconnected. One way to just ensure that happens is just say none of the games are spinoffs. 
I just think a spinoff can still be story relevant. It just can. Like a spinoff does not require that the story doesn't matter. Like I would call Dares of Cerebus a spinoff as well. And that the, in the original Final Fantasy VII, before the remake, kind of altered things. That, you know, it's not like those events didn't happen in that, you know, collection of stories. It's still there and just within a spinoff. That's fine. That happens. And Dirge of Cerebus still has an unresolved cliffhanger. <laughs> yes. Anyways, that's just an aside. But basically, the, the short story is whether or not you like or dislike calling this thing a spinoff, it will follow up, at least in a small way, on the story of Kingdom Hearts 3. So enjoy that. I think it looks fun. I think this year, music's I guess. really good. Yeah. Also coming out later this year, thank you for the segue, is uh, Cyberpunk 2077. So the announcement here is pretty simple. It was delayed a second time. Um, this was originally slated to come out in April. And then they pushed it back to September. And now it is coming out on November 19th. Which normally would kind of just be like a footnote, I think. Like, oh, it got delayed again. That's fine. But then because this game has kind of been at the forefront of both platform holders cross-play plans slash smart upgrades slash whatever you want to call it, when it gets pushed back to November 19th, people are like, is, is that tipping the hand at when these other consoles are coming out? Is anything going to change based on uh, like what those possibilities are if i wanted to play this on a ps5 or xbox series x i think the general answer is basically yes you will get uh you will be able to play the updated version of it though i think the the language was saying that it might not be available right away i don't know if you were more in tune with what which with what was specifically said well it's a little bit confusing especially when it comes to like the playstation 5 version because they haven't because um sony hasn't really said how playstation 5's like backwards compatibility works yet um they said that like there's going to be you know thousands of ps4 titles that will work on playstation 5 um in that mark cerny little uh uh overview that he gave a couple months back but that was more like backwards compatibility and maybe those games will see like a slight performance bump on the new platform but we don't really know um the cyberpunk uh the the team at cd project red they actually alongside this announcement they made a couple of things statements about this one in an, uh, like a an investor relationship call um that they did a conference call to kind of <laughs> uh soothe some tensions about the delay uh, but also on their twitter account they say that cyberpunk will be backwards compatible on both next gen consoles um, and that the PS4 version of the game will work on the PlayStation 5 console. But uh, they kind of, the wording doesn't mean, doesn't say like that they are planning on having like a re release of some sort, like a better version in 2021. And maybe that'll be like the next gen version of the game. It's not exactly clear um, how exactly this is going to work. Right. So. I pulled up our friends at Gumatsu's transcription of the conference call, and it says, it'll look better on next generation from day one, blah, blah, blah. I can confirm that this is not the final update. At some point, we're going to have a more robust update for the next gen's uh, versions, which will be free of charge. Yeah, so but I guess your, your point is just, yeah. 
just a just backwards compatibility, like a like a small upscale performance thing. But like I said, we don't really know how PlayStation 5's like just in general how its backwards compatibility works, other than it has some sort of PS4 back compat. So, yeah. One basic question: Has this been answered? Like one of my brothers actually asked me, like, can I play my PS4 digital games on PS5? Seems like a simple question, but do we know that for certain yet? I mean, probably. Um, one thing I—that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> uh, one thing I will say about the whole cyberpunk situation is that obviously none of us really know the technical like uh, details of how like um, the SDKs are diff- well uh, are diff- different for the PlayStation Four and the PlayStation Five. But I'd imagine that it's probably easier for games like cyberpunk to receive like up, uh, upgrades for um series x than a uh, ps5 simply because both the xbox one and presumably the series x is going to be using DirectX. so if you're coding a game on pc and you're already having multiple platforms like supporting xbox one like backporting some of those pc only like graphical features like maybe ray tracing would probably um, probably be a lot easier to do on the Series X than it would on the PlayStation 5. That's just my assumption now. I think it's almost like this is basically a cross-gen game now. That might be obvious, but it kind of backed itself into being one with the delays, which is fine because it was already going to be a graphical showcase in a, by all respects. But yep, we'll just uh, slowly start filling out what we're planning to see on those uh, holiday November or December months. And one of those is going to be Cyberpunk. Speaking on the uh, Western RPG front, we did get a new nearly two hour long gameplay showcase for Baldur's Gate 3, which is entering early access in August on Steam, maybe. Like, legitimately put in their trailer, maybe. They don't want to commit to it 100%. That sounds familiar. Um, so I poked around this this stream a little bit. Uh, I didn't really watch it start to finish, but it kind of was very similar in vibe. I'm gleaning to the PAX demo from earlier this year, where one thing that Larian has done very candidly that I actually really appreciate about their demos is that they allow them to not be highly scripted vertical slices with the absolute, you know, optimal outcomes. Like he, he plays it dangerously. I think at this point, I don't think he died like he did on the PAX demo, but he struggled when just playing the game with his custom character. And that's kind of like the, that's like the more pure experience with RPGs in terms of having to work around unexpected situations or when you're, you know, when you're dealt a bad hand or whatever, um, so I don't know if there's like much, it's an hour and 50 minutes of pure gameplay. So it kind of shows how Baldur's Gate looks different than it did before. It does still in my mind look a lot like Divinity, which I'm okay with, but I think some people who are more, um, more, you know, more pure about it might think that it's a mistitled Divinity game. I think that stigma is always going to be there. I mean, they're being pretty open that this game is in development and they're changing things. One thing that they changed was in the PAX demo of the game, like your dialogue choices were kind of written 
in a not too typical way in terms of like if you had to make a choice where like you know, random example that's not real like um uh well like the dialogue choices were like like talking in past tense like i i i said my thoughts on the matter or whatever and didn't give like the exact during like real time statement that you would actually say um it was a little bit awkward but now they it's more traditional in terms of like the choices you make are like directly what your character is going to say so that's one that's one change they made. And to be honest, I have to imagine that's quite a bit of work to take all the dialogue yeah. choices that have been written to the game and like rewrite the tense on every single one of them. Like that that took some editors a lot of work to do that. Um, I'm I'm imagining, but there's also a a new ch- there's like a new inspiration system that he showed off where inspiration system that he showed off where you can re-roll dice uh, so many times. And you get points that allow you to do this depending on the solutions oh, you yeah. find in your um, playthrough. That's actually, I talked to, uh, when I got to talk to Sven and oh, I forget his name, Mike Merles, something like that. He's uh, an executive at Wizards of the Coast. Um, the initiative system, I think, is borrowed or at least adjusted from the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. So they've, they're, they're implementing that here. Is what that is. Well, so there's an initiative system and an inspiration system. So they're two well, separate things. Um, yeah, the ins- the inspiration system is the uh, like rerolls. So if you get a bad roll, you can reroll not every single time, but you get a pool of rerolls that you can do. And I guess it's a reward for finding certain quest solutions or completing content. I imagine. So he showed off a little bit of that. He also showed off that he was playing as a custom character this time rather than a rather than one of those like um, kind of pre-created story characters and how depending on your race and background and gender and things you set, the how NPCs react to you will change. So that, that's just one small difference that he showed is like you depending on how you want to play the game, you can either kind of slot in this pre-made character like in the Divinity games, the, they're the Divinity Original Sin, or you can just create a custom character as well. Well, actually, sorry, I, I did a legit, well, actually, damn it. Fuck me. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, first of all, I just think that's an interesting uh, kind of dy- dynamic where in Divinity Original Sin 1, you create a pair of custom characters. That's kind of the hook is that it's a pair of characters because the intent is that you play it in two-player. And all the games, including Baldur's Gate 3, are multiplayer possible. But then in Divinity 2, they did this split where you can create a custom character or an origin character, which is a character with a, you know, a bespoke written background and lore and upbringing. And they're carrying that over into Baldur's Gate. So I think Divinity Original Sin 2 and Baldur's Gate 3 are really the only two games that approach that idea. Like some people say, oh, I want my character to be a blank slate. But then people say, well, that's boring. Then my character is just, you know, an avatar for me like some people don't like that so now they literally just said well there now you got both options you can make a custom character or you can make a character that is one of our have they stated like whether or not um in in, in original sin 2 the the origin characters that you pick are effectively your pool of party members i assume it's the same here in Baldur's gate yeah, 3 that's the same yeah mm-hmm which i think is cool like i didn't think they'd be able to pull it off it sounds like it sound it it feels like on paper solving a problem that doesn't exist, but the execution ends up being pretty good, and now people can play either way they want. 
I do also like the new kind of update to how dialogue works in this game, where it kind of goes into that third person, almost Bioware-esque kind of perspective. It's just a cosmetic change, really, but I think it kind of, it helps to, it helps to kind of really emphasize the story, even though I I spoke, yeah, well, I spoke highly about, like, some people don't feel this way, but I actually really liked that Divinity Original Sin 2 was pretty much entirely voice acted because it sometimes and uh at least if you play like the classic Baldur's Gate games or classic isometric games a lot of the text by the end of the game you're kind of just whizzing through because you know what's important you know what you care about but then you kind of lose some of the flavor in terms of like what characters speak like or sound like or what's important to them in this area of the world or this area of the world and then Baldur's Gate 2 actually or not Baldur's Gate 2 Divinity Original Sin 2 voiced every character and now they're kind of going a step further where not only is that is it that but they've got they've changed the perspective so that you really feel like it's kind of this blending is... the line between the bioware-esque western rpg and the more classic computer rpg isometric style this is actually one of those things that maybe i should inform myself about but it's a little bit interesting seeing like some of these Baldur's Gate Larian videos and showing a lot of like the motion capture they've been doing because the characters are now like fully rendered 3D models and you know have movements and acting um, rather than just uh, like the isometric view of um, Divinity Original Sin. And I'm wondering like has Larian been so successful that they've been able to basically like implement that into they have they've opened new studios and like in one of their studios or are they are there like uh, outsourcing like studios that are built for this? But in any case, it, some of the some of like behind the scenes stuff they show for the development of this game is it's, it's just really cool to see that sort of um, that sort of stuff uh, from time to time. And I kind of just Larian's been able to do so much with uh, their games recently, and it's just, it's, it's kind of funny to think that you know five seven years ago or whatever they were kind of just a, a small crpg studio in in belgium i think some people would say they're still that but uh it almost feels like this is like the way this game is styled it's almost like dragon age origins or inquisition i guess whichever one permanently in its tactical mode and then some people i think are going to wonder like when are they going to make a third person game like i guess isometric is technically third person but you know what i mean like over the shoulder third person western rpg because some people will look at this and they see it as a PC-centric sort of game that they don't gel with, and that's fine. But I do wonder, like, if Baldur's Gate 3, they're stepping out of their comfort zone a little bit, but still to the extent where people are saying that this is, quote-unquote, like, Divinity Baldur's Gate, or whatever you want to call it. I guess it, it feels unfair to kind of push by, push past something that's not even released in Early Access and say, I wonder what's next. But it's hard not to wonder, I guess. But yeah, Baldur's Gate 3, we've got a uh, early access for everyone available in August. And then uh, to tide you over until then, we've got two hours of raw gameplay of Sven being said. All the remaining news for this week is kind of, again, more ticky-tack stuff, like release dates or new character demos or things like that. Um, it's not quite as much as the deluge that we had last week, but still kind of in that foe e3 mode uh we got a new animation and gameplay trailer for scarlet nexus and i think that this helps to sell the game a little more than it did 
in the original showing at the Microsoft event, it still looks kind of like God Eater meets Code Vein, only it's not from that studio. But that's kind of what uh, it's kind of what I uh, what I think of when I see it. But a third person action game with some RPG elements. I still think some of the aesthetics and the, like the enemy design is really weird, but almost in that unsettling sort of way that makes you more interested in it. I don't know if you guys have any further thoughts on that Scarlet Nexus gameplay that we saw. I feel like I haven't seen enough to really make an opinion of it. It's 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 a 3D like real like real time action RPG, and we saw the main character um, kind of running, jumping, doing some slashy stuff. He has some telekinetic powers where he can take parts of the environment and sort of uh, like throw things at enemies. And I just feel like I haven't seen enough to like really get what this game is doing that's cool or not i just need to see more before i'm really interested in it i do think it's a better showing like i said but yeah some of the enemy design is just kind of off the wall weird in a good way i think but just weird um i wanted to shout out this one but as part of the the ongoing ign demos and then they also got a demo on steam uh another crpg celasta crowd of the magister I mostly wanted to give this one a shout out because it is another game that's borrowing from the uh, Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition rule set. So I don't follow Dungeons and Dragons that much, uh, but it is cool to see more and more games uh, get kind of access to the license and be officially supported by Wizards of the Coast. And that that's not even to include like the stuff that we also know is coming, like the new Dark Alliance and things like that. So Celasta is just kind of one of the first indie ones that will be, you know, has a playable demo. Kind of, it's, it's kind of kind of sit in the shadow of Baldur's Gate, no matter what it does. But there it is. Yeah, it's 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 actually weirdly amusing. This game has been in development for a long time. It was a Kickstarter game, um, but like when I was watching the de- the demonstration for it, it looks very very similar in style anyway to Baldur's Gate only without the huge budget so and it I don't think it has any sort of release date or anything yet so it's kind of the timing isn't great for them I think where it's like well if you want to if you want to throw well realized uh, Dungeons and Dragons computer RPG Baldur's Gate is going to have an early access like in a couple of months where this game doesn't even have well it has a demo but Otherwise, I've heard impressions on the demo haven't been great. Apparently, it's yeah. like all indoors in a big shadowy dungeon with a lot of verticality, which I think some verticality in a CRPG is is fine. But knowing that perspective from an isometric point, it can be unwieldy if you go too far. And I haven't played this myself, so this is you know secondhand. But apparently, it gets to the point where like you have characters in multiple levels of elevation, and it just gets like kind of awkward to play. But I guess maybe they'll they'll take the feedback from the demo and kind of buff it out. And it's there if you're really interested in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, this just kind of an aside. I remember I forget the number, but there was some. I think it was a VentureBeat article um, late last year saying how they had Wizards of the Coast had basically licensed out the rulebook or the Dungeons and Dragons IP even to like way more studios than it ever has in the past. And there's like, I think it said something like, I'm just going to rough number, like 10. There's like 10 Dungeons and Dragons games in development or something like that, which is kind of nuts. Um, 
maybe they're hoping to kind of hit like a wave of popularity because Dungeons and Dragons has always been popular, but not that much in the video game space. Baldur's Gate is obviously one. There's the Dark Alliance game. This one is based off the rule book. I'm not sure if we know of any others out there, but maybe expect more in the future. Seems like they're really going for it. And then, uh, staying on this Western RPG kick, uh, we got news from Warhorse Studios that Kingdom Come Deliverance has sold more than 3 million copies. Which, if I had to guess like before knowing that, that's about how much I would have guessed it would have sold. So it's not like, wow, that's a lot, or wow, it's underperforming. It's like, yeah, that seems about right. Um, you've played this game. I don't know if you have uh, any real further thoughts on this. Yeah, I played the game when it released. Um, my general thoughts on it, I was impressed by kind of the scope of it being a debut game from a new studio. It pretty much was an indie, but like it had a really large scope for what it was. And um, even though some of the some of the things it touted, like in terms of how realistic it was, I think, were kind of off the mark a bit, because um, there's plenty of things in the game that aren't very realistic. Like I was. It's a pretty interesting game. Um, it's more like a it's it's more like a a medieval life simulation game than an RPG at times, um, in terms of all the different like simulation sort of activities you can do. In terms of like uh, there's like potion making and sparring, and then more RPG things like the questing and combat. But yeah, I mean, I'm kind of sort of interested to see what the studio will do next, but. We'll see. It's always seemed like an interesting game to me in terms of how it's designed, just not really the premise. Like this is gonna sound really thin, but like just it's it takes place in I don't even remember, like Bolivia? Bohemia, yeah. Bohemia, damn it. Uh it's like a Eastern European country that I don't know much about. Maybe that should make me more interested in playing it, but they kind of marketed it at the, as this like super you know, quote unquote realistic game, very like very light on the fantasy elements but then i guess in the dlc or late in the game it kind of goes into fantasy elements anyway not in the main game maybe uh, dlc but not in the main game by realism i think, that's, I, I think I was earlier there's just some i think they might have actually patched this out but there was some really kind of stupid stuff in terms of like um you weren't allowed to save at any time because they wanted it to be like you're living with your choices and whatnot but then also you can like you could transport items or you could move items from your personal inventory to your horse inventory at any time, no matter where you were or where your horse was. And there was times when like I was in the middle of a monastery and my horse was outside and like, oh I got I gotta grab my potions that are on my horse somehow. You know, like I'm not even in the same place as my horse, but you can do that. It's just kind of some weird contracting or contradicting realism mechanics there, but um, I will say that the game, like its cutscenes and voice acting, uh, were way more impressive than I thought they would be for a game from like a new studio like this. Uh, you know, it was pretty well done. It seems like the type of game that you could really enjoy if you really allow yourself to get immersed in it. And I know that sounds like super, like, what does that mean to get immersed in it? But if you really think like, okay, a medieval setting, what, what, what limitations would be present? What would it be like? And, and to the extent that you can actually convey that in a video game, 
it really seems like the sort of game that if you allow you if you like get over that first like 10 hour hump of getting into it i know that sounds almost like overbearing but it just to, from the outside looking in that's what it seems like to me it is very much like a role-playing game though and like when you're starting out this game kingdom come deliverance you kind of suck um your your, your character your, you play as an actual like bespoke character named henry um but like he kind of sucks at everything you can't fight worth shit you can't pickpocket anyone you can only break the easiest of locks um and you kind of have to you kind of have to just work with what you're given early on like i can only i can only beat up like wimps and only steal the most obvious like easily stealable things but then like as you sort of kind of baby feed yourself some levels and stats eventually 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 by the end of the game you kind of become like a walking demigod where you can sneak around everywhere and pick up pickpocket everything and nobody can lay a finger on you but it does have that kind of ramp up where you sort of need to ease your way into into things because it is all number driven and if your numbers aren't there you can't do it seems like a sort of game i would like a lot but uh Maybe I'll be there day one for whatever Warhorse is working on next, because it seems like, I don't know, we're, here we are talking back to back, well not quite back to back, about uh, kind of these up and coming but quickly growing Western RPG studios to kind of supplement the, I don't know, the stalwarts of Bethesda, Bioware, whoever else, I guess. Where where is CD product on there now? They they've been there. They're they're there now. They're at the top, I guess, or near the top. So now we've got other people kind of climbing up the ranks, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. So I think that's healthy and cool to see. And then the last note here, I don't think we'll have a lot to say on this, but Little Town Hero, which was the Game Freak standalone IP that released on Switch about a year ago. Um is coming out on Steam on June 30th, so not too long away. Um, this was kind of a surprise announcement, but other Game Freak games like Tembo the Badass Elephant, which is an awesome game title, have already been on Steam. So it's like the precedent is there for this. Uh, unfortunately, Josh, who reviewed this game for us, didn't think it was very good. The general word of mouth around Little Town Hero has not been that great. Uh, but it is coming out on Steam, so... One thing that's kind of interesting is that the new console release has, I guess one of the criticisms of the game is that the combat design is such that it can be, it can become kind of tedious, long-winded, or even just plainly hard by the end of the game. And the new console versions, which it's getting a PlayStation 4 version and like a retail Switch version, but both of them are getting like an easy mode edition. I guess they heard that criticism and the way they're putting a bandit on it is just to make it easier, um, which maybe doesn't solve a design issue, but maybe just makes it easier to swallow. Um, I assume the Steam version will have that too, although I don't think it's said specifically. But maybe that'll massage some of the some of that criticism. But I still uh, think we'll the premise is kind of nice about like an RPG that's deliberately shrunk in scope to not be this world-ending, you know, thing. But just the execution apparently wasn't quite there. I I always hate to to speak about that on a game I haven't played, but just trying to recognize where the where the consensus and where the other people like Josh, whose opinion I respect, have have stated about it. So 
I guess we'll see if these console and Steam releases will, you know, shift their opinion at all. And that's all I had listed for RPG-related news for this week. Obviously, there's been, like, pe people have played the demos that have been available for various RPGs, including games like Chris Tales and Celesta from the Steam, like, summer festival thing. And then, obviously, there's been other news that's kind of been filtered out about stuff that's already, uh, like, stuff that we covered last week, like Fate, Fate Tactics and things like that. Can't, can't hit every single piece of like incidental news that comes out from developer Twitters and you know, live streams and things like that. But I think we've hit the highlights here. Do we know uh, ahead of time what to look forward to for next week? For um, our audience, the biggest, thing, yeah. the biggest thing to look forward to next week is the New Game Plus Expo. Um, that's on Tuesday. June 23rd. I think it's in the morning for us in the States. Uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, 9 a.m. Uh, Pacific time on the 23rd. And that's got uh, studios like Atlas and Access Games and NIS America and Idea Factory showing off some of their titles. And um, I'm not sure if there's going to be many new announcements in this demonstrate in this little expo, if it's going to be just sort of deeper dives on some of their already announced games. There are a couple of titles from like uh atlas japan or nis Amer or nis uh, software in japan or idea factory that might be announced here for localization we'll see um but that's that's the sort of thing that people who read rpg site are probably going to be interested in and that's on tuesday when is that cyberpunk stream oh right that's also on Thursday of next week, yeah. So for for people specifically looking forward to Cyberpunk, that is on Thursday. I'm not sure the time, um, but that's going to be a deep dive into that. One thing that's actually sort of interesting about Cyberpunk in a way is that I feel like CD Projekt actually hasn't shown a whole lot of it. Um, like they have like their E3 showings, but in between that, I, don't, I feel like they've kind of been keeping the lid on it, and that sort of makes it interesting in a way where they haven't. They haven't like given it, away. It, it elevates the mystique. The yeah, I think um, unfortunately we didn't get the opportunity to do this, but I think some of the bigger websites have been able to get like doing re they're doing some preview events for it. Um, they actually stated that in their delay message, so m maybe there'll be some content coming out from uh, games media that'll show more what the game has. So that'll be interesting to see. Well, I remember just a couple, like a month ago or so, they released just a short GIF, saying it correctly, George, uh, on Twitter, about like one of the cars in like a desert area. And it was just showing off the car, but people were like, oh shit, a desert area. Like that's how uh, starved people are for uh, seeing new content from this game. So I guess next week we'll talk about whatever falls out of the Cyberpunk presentation and everything from that New Game Plus Expo. So until then, uh, check out the features on RPGSite.net where you can always find us uh, and are on our Twitter page at RPGSite. We've got the Chris Tales preview, the Xenoblade Retrospective, and the Summer and Morrow review. You can find us on our YouTube page and where we have 30 minutes of Persona 4 Golden PC footage at RPGSite.net or on our Facebook page at RPGSite.net. You can find a link to our Discord from the homepage at the top bar, which is new. I thought it had been there a while, but it is there now. There's also links to all of our other socials on there. 
And as always, you'll hear from us hopefully next week to talk about what we see from these two events. So until then, take care. Bye, everyone.